If there's any kids still left in the service, Kids Church is happening now. They can make their way out, but I think almost everybody's gone. So, you know, in the middle of the night when you can't sleep and you start thinking about tons of things? So, that happened to me early this morning, and actually what I started to think about was the passage for today. And I had an idea, which I ran past Todd, and he said, go ahead and do it, because you don't want your scripture reader going rogue, because that's, that's, that's just, <laughs> that's no good for anybody. So, anyways, um, uh, as we read this this morning, uh, I invite you to see if you can find a phrase in here that directly connects uh, with the Christmas story in terms of the scriptural passages around that. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. I'm thinking you found the words that are common to the Christmas story from that reading. Advent starts in the darkness. You know how at Good Friday we do a tenebrae service and it gets darker and darker in the room? If you were doing one Advent service, it would go from dark to get lighter and lighter. So we need to start in the darkness this morning in our mind as we consider too often the state of our lives and sometimes the state of this world. There's a movie out right now, and I really like the title. As soon as I saw the title, I, um, this is on, no? Thanks, Amanda. It's called Beautiful Boy. And I haven't seen the movie and don't know much about it. Oh, now we're like four ahead. Um, but the title gets you the idea that there's a longing. The story, the movie is based on a true story. The father and son, I think, wrote a little book, and they've turned that into a movie. And the young man is, um, in this true story, someone who apparently had all kinds of promise, you know, did great in school, and all these kinds of things, and then got caught up in a crystal meth addiction. And so the movie, obviously, is about the relationship between, particularly, I think, the father and the son. 
But I'm going to show you the whole clip, the whole trailer, if that's okay. It's like two minutes long. Because I think it communicates this longing. Longing for something different than the way things are. Let's take a look at that. Thanks, Amanda. When I tried it, I felt better than I ever had, so... I just kept on doing it. Why? I don't know. I thought we were closer than most fathers and sons. <laughs> this isn't us. This is not who we are. Both of you, stop. There are moments that I look at him and I wonder who he is. How's our boy, David? I'm not giving up now. Never. You always gotta be patrolling everything. It doesn't make any sense. You're controlling me right now. It's you. Let us help you. I don't want you to help. Don't you understand that? I had such grand plans. He'd graduate from college, do something amazing. And now I just want him to not die. Who are you, Nick? This is me, Dad. Here, this is who I am. If you could take all the words in the language, it still wouldn't describe how much I love you. I love you more than everything. I'm really sorry, Dad. It's hard as hell to get sober. But I love my family. I want them to be proud of me. how scared you are it'll pass though it always does nick what do you have is extraordinary and you're gonna get it back you're gonna find it again You guys might have to click when I do this. Just pretend so that I don't have to go click. You can see the pain and the longing and the desire for things to be better. But the realization that there might still be pain ahead and there's a sense of helplessness. I want to start Advent in that darkness. The places of human longing. And the sense that there is some kind of alienation between humanity and God. It's these places where we think of things like judgment and forgiveness. I pray for you in this place when I hear that someone here in the congregation or someone you know hates their job and is still going off to work each day in angst and sorrow. I pray for you. And I pray we're supposed to be better than this for people who are unable to see a better future. I pray for you within your families, for pain within families. We all have it and know it. When someone you love is going through something difficult or finding life so hard and you just wish that you could make everything better and it's like an ache, that longing is part of the human experience. And then there's many times... I think, where you would feel that within yourself. 
Advent starts in the darkness. If we could know what people are going through right now as we sit here in our own community, but let alone around the world, and the realization that there truly is fear and there truly is evil. We bring this together as we enter Advent and imagine the longing and pain as a cry, a calling out. Is there any hope that things will be set right? Advent starts in the darkness. Advent is waiting, but properly, as the church has understood it, Advent is waiting for the return of the King, for Jesus Christ to come back and make things right. There are these glimpses in Scripture, like this that Anne read for us from Revelation chapter 1. I remember the first time that I encountered this reading in my young faith. I began reading the Bible every day as a teenager. And when I got to this passage, I was caught up by it. It's a beautiful, beautiful depiction of the risen Lord, cosmic view of Jesus Christ, not just a baby in a manger and not one crucified on a cross, but Jesus Christ risen and exalted and powerful and merciful and just. When I was younger, I got into my faith at a pretty early age as a teenager, and it was something that, um, though my family had some background in the church, it was never forced upon me, and so it was a decision that, um, well, by the Holy Spirit, I came to on my own. And in the Baptist church that I was in, I think I would have seen it in a brethren church as well, because I did later, um, I started to pick up that some people were really into stuff that they called end times. Any of you familiar? Yeah, and I got into it too. And Revelation is kind of end time stuff, or at least people think it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's much better than straight you know, prophecy, trying to figure out uh, what year this will happen and what this political entity means. I heard what others were saying about Revelation, and I started hearing terms like pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, right? The beast, the number of the beast, the day of the Lord. Well, that's not as much a Revelation term. And I noticed something. It could all be pretty harsh and fearful. Uh, the next slide. It's the one with the, there we go. Is that familiar to some of you? I started, I tried to give you a really basic one. Don't learn from that, please. I'm not saying it's all wrong. It's just one of the presentations that this would be expanded. People would have charts and graphs. And right on there, you can't probably see it, but it has the 1973 energy crisis on there. And they would always have things like this. Depending on when they were written, like the European Union means this, and this means that, and this means that. And there was always that. And the rapture, by the way, the rapture was when Christians were supposed to disappear. And then all these other things were going to happen. It was, it's interesting because I outlined this sermon a few weeks ago. And I, I brought to mind, or I, what came into my memory was a series of movies that I saw as a young person, someone just getting interested in faith, that were absolutely terrifying. And a lot of other people saw these, I think particularly people who grew up in the church, which I wasn't as close in, in that regard. Uh, as I say, I didn't have anybody forcing stuff upon me. And I noticed that people were in terror over these movies. They were called, I think it was the Approaching Hoofbeat series. Anybody remember that? 
I, I might be getting the title wrong, but in these ones, they were, and they were set, they, they were filmed in like the 1970s. Everybody had like bell-bottom jeans and everything. But it was all around the end times. And people were getting their heads cut off with guillotines. And it was just... Carolyn Ahrens, when she was here a couple of weeks ago, she actually talked about seeing the same movies. And I had just, I thought, okay, I'm not the only one who shares this experience. What I've learned as a pastor since, and I even saw this before becoming a pastor, is that for many Christians, what this did, and non-Christians, this just scared them and didn't bring them to think anymore about the way and love of Jesus Christ. It produced, at times, terror or confusion, but not faith. For some, it may have. I will accept that. But for me, it didn't add to my faith that was already growing. And so I'm unsure uh, what happened. Now you know what Anne was calling you to recognize. The angel appears to Joseph, to Mary, to the shepherds. The angels appear. And what's one of the first things those angels say? Do not fear, fear not, do not be afraid. And what was presented to me as a young person around the second coming of Jesus Christ was, Be afraid! What have we done? I know enough about the Bible now and my faith that I'll say this. I'm done with it. With that interpretation, I mean, not the Bible and my faith. I'm done with the fear. I believe in the second coming of Jesus Christ. But when he appears, John falls flat on his stomach and Jesus says, glowing, (laughs) cosmic appearance, and still says, fear not. It would be interesting to think that maybe one of the things we need forgiveness over is thinking that we can scare people to know the love of Jesus Christ. So now, I work with people my age or younger, some older, I suppose, people in their 40s, 50s, 30s, who may have shared a common experience that I just described. And some of them are still terribly afraid. And some don't ever want to talk about these things. And so we mostly, in some places, don't. And then others are saying, you better darn well get talking about that. I want to tell you something. I want to talk about it again. But I don't want to do it in a way that thinks that fear is what will be the motivator. The second coming of Jesus Christ, I can only ask that you would see this in your mind, that you would be open to this and let the Holy Spirit speak it to you. And I don't want to upset you or hurt you. But if you have closed your mind to this important concept of the second coming of Jesus Christ, I would ask you to open it again. But to understand that it is in the judgment of Jesus Christ that we find our hope. Because in the judgment of Jesus Christ, he will wipe away every tear. He is going to set things right in the world. And you can turn on the news right now, any minute of any day, or look on your phone and see that things are not right. 
but he will set things right. He is coming again. He is not leaving us alone in confusion and pain. In Advent, we wait for the coming of the Lord. And in hope, we say, come Lord Jesus. A few notes about the second coming briefly. Firstly, it's beyond, beyond any boundaries that we have. The, one of the problems with all those charts and graphs is that they were all wrong. I remember at Cedar Springs, I think I've told you this before, on one of my personal like pastoral retreats where I go by myself and sit for a few days and pray, a couple of days, I found this would be in like the mid-90s, I found a, a little uh, pamphlet in the rain on a table outside, and it was called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And I'm not saying we shouldn't believe in these things. Of course we should. I'm just saying we don't need to enter this game. We trust in Him. It's cosmic, beyond our understanding. This picture of the risen Lord should tell you that. Whatever it is that you have in your mind that you are so right about, the coming of Jesus Christ will shatter your categories. It's a fantastical picture. It's above and over and bigger than anything we could ever describe. For me, what strikes me both as a young Christian and even to this day, it's the voice that strikes me the most. I don't know what it is for you. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And with that voice, he said, fear not. Some of you are thinking, well, I guess you'd be thinking. I'm not reading your minds, I don't think. But I can tell by your faces. No, anyway. Um, Yeah, but what about those people who should be afraid? All I'll say is, we've gone down that road. And it, for the most part, hasn't made people interested in faith. The anguish of your personal pain, the terror of every historical wrong, somehow will be made right. I don't fully understand it. But that's how much I trust in Jesus Christ, that he will make all things right. And of course, for me, what repeatedly comes into my mind at that is when Jen and I visited Auschwitz a few years ago. And I, I, all I do is I think, how could you ever, Lord Jesus, make this right? But that is the promise. Secondly, God's future determines our present and our past. We always think about, you know, if we do this and then this and then this and we kind of build our own lives. The proper Christian understanding is that the way God will accomplish all things in history will reach back into our future and our present and our past. God's future determines our present and our past and our future. We'll speak more of that in the weeks to come. And finally, the coming of Jesus Christ in and above history is hopeful. I've been saying it over and over again already this morning, but this is what we need to know, that he will come to set things right. So what I'd like to do if I had time with each of you, I would sit down with you and we'd turn the news on for a few minutes. And once we got past all the American political stuff, take a little bit, we'd get to some kind of tragic story in the world, right? And if your heart would break and I would see that or whatever, I would basically say, now, now, 
What does the coming of Jesus Christ mean now? That even this little child who is experiencing pain, whatever it is that's moving your heart as you're watching, our hope is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will come to judge, but not to condemn. You know John chapter 3, John 3, 16 and 17, not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Extend this to all of history and to cosmic proportions. This is the second coming. I am not trying to give you any idea that everything is all okay. And Jesus will come back and say, you all are great. It's all, or everything you've done is good. He is coming as judge. He is coming to deal with evil. But he is not a human judge or a ruler or a dictator. Any time you've ever heard any human person say, we will rid the world of evil, you know that what comes next is terrible. But my Lord Jesus Christ is not that. And if I could reach back into your own past, each of you, and I know it might sound trite, I'm okay with that, but this is our faith. That that pain that you've experienced and is now in some ways behind you but still part of you, He will make even that right. That's the promise. And now the toughest part is the realization that evil, the line between good and evil, is not between us and other people, but it's within each of us. We humble ourselves before Him. And as we say, come Lord Jesus, we trust even with our own sinfulness. He is strong and powerful and mighty and just. And over all of these, He is loving. Any human attempt to do these things might achieve some good, but it will always bring more problems. So a couple of weeks ago, um, I had this terrible feeling after I did something good. So right now I'm going to tell you from the front, pastors shouldn't like to do this. I did a really good thing a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to tell you about it. Ready? It's not that impressive. You probably were already like, yeah, we thought so. So we had a TELUS guy come to our house to put in new boxes and stuff because the old PVR and stuff, it's so old that it's like not working properly. And anyway, I'll go into that story. But eventually the tech was there. And when the tech came and I was there to kind of walk him through, um, it was a really good tech. And you could talk to him. And he responded like a person, not a computer. And it all was great. And it was really getting along well. And I thought... I wish kind of had more time to clean up, particularly the upstairs office beside our room because that's like the one of our rooms of shame. You know what I mean? Like just throw stuff in there. And that's, of course, where the modem is. So he's got to go in there. And so once he was in there and then came back downstairs and was working in another place, I was just kind of chatting to him, asked him if he wanted some coffee. And I said, you must get into some places that are really interesting, hey? Which was me kind of trying to say, I know it's a little bit messy, but I know you see way worse. That was what I was trying to do. And he looked up from the cables and he said, yeah, we get some real doozies. He said, we got these hoarders. He said, I was in a place just a few days ago. He said, and we had to put a line on the wall, like a new plate. And he said, I had to put it up at chest height because there were so many boxes and newspapers and things that look like garbage that couldn't 
He said, so we put it in there and had to run a cable over the boxes. And then I did the good thing. I said, yeah, this was just, this isn't my goodness, this is the Holy Spirit, whatever. But anyway, I said, I can't imagine what it must like, what it must be like to be one of those people, what's going on in their own head, their own mental health. And he kind of shifted. He was a nice guy, I could tell. But he didn't know whether the conversation was going to be like, yeah, that's so terrible, right? And we would go down that line. And he shifted right away. And I was aware, even as, even as I said that, that something good had taken place. And then the two of us were feeling some kind of sympathy for people who are experiencing problems that we don't experience firsthand. Not long after that, I was praying, and God put on my heart this verse from Philippians. You know where Paul says, whatever is to my advantage, I count it all loss to knowing Christ, to gaining Christ. And I thought to myself, and then not, not darkness, not horror type of thing, but I thought, as I'm praying to you, God, this little nothing that I did, just saying something helpful instead of hurtful, what if that's the best thing I ever do in my life? What if that's it? And as I was praying that, God opened my eyes, I feel in the Holy Spirit, to this. Any good thing that I do even, it's like filthy rags, rubbish. Do you understand that we come before Jesus Christ not only in our sinfulness, and the fear, that's how the fear works. We come and say, you better get ready because he's coming back. And I've made the right choice, and you better. And what we're doing when we do that is we're relying on our own goodness or our own faith or whatever it is. For us to truly be open to the second coming of Jesus Christ, we must all get down on our knees before the Lord and say, even my goodness is nothing before you. It looks like those other people's badness. Do you understand? So many of you, your goodness is preventing you from seeing Jesus Christ. It's like a posture. So you've been trying to prove yourself by doing good things or declaring your faith and wishing others had faith. Or you've been defiant and saying, I'll do it my own way. But can we understand that those are both just two sides of the same coin? It's both what I have done to get something from God. And when you realize how loving Jesus is, how strong, but loving too, you basically, I could do it as a posture, you do this with your head, okay? Jesus Christ, cosmic risen Jesus Christ is before you. And you thinking of all of your good and bad together. It's like you brought it there to present to him. Mostly your goodness, right? You brought it there to present to him as if that would make you acceptable. And you got it all ready and you even went to Michael's and got the craft box ready and wrapped it up nicely. And you're just about to present it to him and then you realize, I just leave it there. And you do this. I trust in you.
He's coming again to set things right and every tear will be wiped away and there will be no more death. I was at a graveside yesterday doing a little funeral service. And in this Revelation text, there is this reminder that he holds the keys to life and death and even to Hades. Whatever concept of hell is present there and in other places. He holds the keys even to those things. The worst of all destruction, annihilation, fearful, terrible judgment, that which we would describe as hell. He holds the keys, and he is good. There's an old religious word. Oh, actually, I'll go here first. This is for those of you who are into classic rock. So there's a whole bunch of you here. Um, there's an old Peter Gabriel song called Salisbury Hill. So it, it, it works better if you know the song and you can get in your head, you know, do, 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 right? And it says, climbing up on Salisbury Hill, I can see the city lights. But then the emotional heart of the song is it gets to this place where it says, so it's a, a young man, or a man, I guess, I don't know that it's young, but I'm standing, stretching every nerve. I had to listen, had no choice. I could not believe the information. I just had to trust imagination. My heart going boom, boom, boom. And then this is like the second coming of Jesus Christ, the love of the Father. Son, he said, grab your things. I've come to take you home. Where that broken, alienated relationship is restored in Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's the hope of the second coming. Yes, judgment, but judgment unto hope. All manner of things shall be made well. There is a loving Father over all, and He is strong and mighty to make things right. I just ask you this. Can we become, again, a people who even declares and waits for the second coming? But this time, without the charts and the graphs. I've noticed something in my years as a pastor. Oftentimes, thinking about Jesus coming again, as people get older, they get more convinced that he's coming soon. You know there's a giveaway with that, right? That you think he's coming before you die. Well, there's a lot of people who have thought that who have died. I don't know when he's coming again. (laughs) But I know that it's bigger than my life or death. I also know that sometimes some young people don't see that as such a wonderful thing. They could look and say, well, you've lived most of your life. (laughs) We need to recover this in a hopeful way that young and old would know that as we experience sorrow and pain and joy as the reality of life can come to us, that we know, I don't know if you can see that, but I'll read it. That when the day of the Lord comes, this is Fleming Rutledge in her book on Advent, which is mostly a book about the judgment of God. When the day of the Lord comes, the whole world will discover that the only thing that matters is the consummation of God's purpose. The only things that are lasting are things that are done in accordance with His will. This means that every human deed undertaken in love will be redeemed, however poorly it was executed and however much it seemed, may have seemed to fail. Every generous human action in every possible configuration of family, however flawed it may seem in the present, 
will be taken up into the depths of the love of God. Or the other way to say this is He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. May we know this as hopeful. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before things that are too lofty for us. I'll just say this. I am glad that neither me nor others, even here in our midst, are in charge of history. Would you help us, those who feel that we don't talk about these things enough, and those who feel afraid to ever talk about them, Would you help us to humble ourselves before you and trust in you? We pray for those who don't have this faith in you, Lord Jesus. That maybe even by our reflection of your love, others would see and hear. And we thank you that even as we come to this season of Advent, thinking about the second coming, even as we can light a candle and call it the candle of judgment, we will declare that it is your judgment, Lord Jesus showing us the love of a loving Father who reaches out to us no matter what. May we respond in Jesus' name. Amen.